Hello, everyone, and welcome to another installment of Podcast 360, your go-to resource for medical news and clinical updates. I'm your host, Stephanie Holland, alongside our moderator, Jessica Bard, with Consultant 360. Today, we're speaking with Dr. Shari Brosnahan and Avin Dalal, who recently presented their recent study on clinical questions surrounding VTE and COVID-19 infection at CHESS 2021. To begin, could you give us a brief overview of your background and experience? My name is Shari Brosnahan. I'm one of the pulmonary critical care attendings at NYU Langone Health in New York, New York. I'm also one of the associate program directors in the pulmonary critical care fellowship there. Good afternoon, everyone. My name is Bhavin Dalal. I'm an associate professor at Oakland University William Beaumont School of Medicine and a pulmonary critical care sleep medicine physician at Beaumont Health. I'm a program director for Pulmonary Critical Care Fellowship uh, for the Beaumont Health, Detroit area, Michigan. Well, thank you both for joining us on the podcast today. We really appreciate it. Can you please just start by giving us a brief overview of your session and your research, please? Our section was great. We were able to cover all the clinical questions surrounding VTE and COVID-19 infections. Basically, we walked through various different aspects of COVID-19 and the pathophysiology behind thrombosis, as well as treatment options in the wards and the ICU. We had a session about uh, which are the patients good for the screening of the VTE or DVT or pulmonary embolism, which are the patients good for therapeutic and prophylactic anticoagulation, and what can we do about a VTE in general with the covid 19 infection. I know there's a lot to get into, but if you could just take kind of the key clinical takeaways, what would you say are the key take-home messages for the audience? I think COVID-19 has been very interesting for a lot of people, especially because we've shifted so quickly in a lot of our treatment paradigms. So initially, we kept on seeing patients come in and we were overwhelmed by the amount of thrombosis we are seeing. And it really made us think that these patients were pro-coagulopathic and and were more likely to clot. However, there are a lot of randomized controlled trials that have been done recently that show that this is even more of a confusing question than we thought originally. So if we look at the randomized controlled trials, what they have shown is that in floor-level patients, basically patients who don't require high-flow oxygen, that these patients benefit benefit from anticoagulation. However, in the ICU patient, there was no benefit seen in anticoagulation. In fact, maybe even a trend to harm. I think this is even more confusing because when we look at the patients who are more likely to have blood clots, that's higher in the patients that are in the ICU and lower in the patients that are in the floor level. So the question is, what are we protecting against and how is this helpful for patients? It's still yet to be discovered. Another important key message for the COVID in general, I will say, is whatever we are going to discuss today may not be truthful tomorrow. It's an ever-changing scientific field. And just in last 18 months, we have seen A to Z and Z to A for every single diagnostic and treatment interventions we have thought about COVID. So you might have to record this session again next month. I think that's a really good kind of tee off for the next question. I know that the information is changing all the time, but what's next for COVID-19 and VTE research? So I think it's getting more into this mechanistic idea of what's causing anticoagulation to be beneficial in a patient population that might be less at risk for venous thrombosis. I think the question is, is heparin actually even more of a confusing question surrounding this is if heparin or anticoagulation is what's causing this benefit to be seen. 
because there are trials, a multi-platform trial that was published in the New England Journal that shows that heparin's portend favorable prognosis on floor-level patients. Also, we saw in HEP-COVID that Lovenox also shows this, this favorable prognosis. However, in the Lopez study, we don't necessarily see a trend towards favorable prognosis with the use of DOAX or basically selective 10 inhibitors. And so the idea is that maybe heparin, not just simply anticoagulation, might be part of this treatment phenomenon. Heparin has the ability to interact with the spike protein, and the spike protein is important for basically getting into cells via the ACE2 receptor. And whether heparin actually changes the way the spike protein interacts with the ACE2 receptor is still under investigation. So I think what's next is to kind of further differentiate or anticoagulation. And then what kind of thrombosis are we talking about? Because conventionally, when we look at anticoagulation of ET, we're talking about venous thrombosis and pulmonary embolism. However, when we look at COVID specifically, we see arterial thrombosis in a reasonable number of patients. When we look at the HEP COVID study, we look at VTE specifically, there can be differences than if we look at include arterial thrombosis and take endpoints such as organ fee survival days or mortality, which have been shown to be improved with heparin products. Just to kind of uh, elaborate on the Sherry's idea, the as she mentioned, uh, the heparin may have additional antiviral, anti-inflammatory, and even some other activities which we are not aware of it apart from the anticoagulation effects. And that's why the heparin was shown to improve mortality or the organ-free support days in the multi-platform randomized control trial in the non-sick or non-critically ill patients, but they were not shown to show the same improvement in the critically ill patient. What we actually originally believed, all of us uh, did do a lot of anticoagulation or therapeutic anticoagulation for our ICU or the sickest of the sickest population, but the evidence or the study results were completely counterintuitive. And one of the thought process behind that is that the, during the early phase of a thrombosis, the clots are fresh. And if we give anticoagulation during that time, they are more likely to work. But when the time goes on and the clot become more organized, anticoagulation or therapeutic anticoagulation may be even harmful. So uh, this these are kind of a very a recent finding from the New England Journal of Medicine article published in August of 2021, still not adapted widely from the practice standpoint. And uh, there are a lot of questions uh, emerged after the study results. Is there anything else that you'd like to add on this topic that you think that we missed? Yeah, so I think when we talk about all these randomized control trials, we think about randomized control trials as a gold standard and infallible, but all of these randomized control trials are all open label, which makes the endpoint being mortality probably the best endpoints we could pick or organ free survival. But if we're actually looking for thrombosis generation, that can be harder to kind of look for in a non-blinded study, right? Because a provider might think, the pretest probability of a patient having a thrombosis if a patient is getting anticoagulation is significantly different. Furthermore, they might think undergoing an invasive test or a non-invasive test such as an ultrasound might not be worth it because the patient's already getting the treatment for that disease. So I think a lot has been made about the endpoints used in these studies, including not being related to actually thrombosis. But I would remind everyone that these being open label kind of make that harder to achieve. The one other point I would like to add is a value of a D-dimer. In the COVID VTE, uh, we have given a lot of value to the value of a D-dimer. 
but <clears throat> this study results, uh, especially in a non-critically ill patient or a floor patients, what Sherry was saying earlier, those who got a benefit from therapeutic anticoagulation, irrespective of a D-dimer value. So they had done analysis for the people who have a low D-dimer, which was defined as a less than two times of upper limit of normal, roughly speaking at a thousand uh, units versus the high D-dimer and unknown D-dimer. And in all three groups, they have seen a significant survival or the organ-free support days benefit. So what is the value of a D-dimer now? It's again another confusing question. Thank you both for your time today. I really appreciate it. It was a pleasure speaking with you both. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you. Catch up with all of our episodes at consultant360.com slash podcasts. Stay tuned for more.